A lot of people, particularly intellectuals, like to complain about our consumerist culture in America. Well, what creates a consumerist culture? A monetary policy that destroys the long-term value and reward for saving your own money. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sat or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy for you. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it's just a click or phone call away. Casa has the best in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Take your financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it's Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. With a larger screen, it makes it much easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger user since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you'd like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino and is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences and that money can't buy. BitCasino has 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please gamble responsibly. Also, we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for the future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides you the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases, forever. And do you know what? You can also earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. If you would like to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions, all available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Ovik, good to see you, man. Hey, man, it's good to be back with you. Yes, yeah, good to I you. I wore black in your honor. Oh, you did, thank you. I, I have a habit of wearing black. <laughs> Nearly every single interview, I pretty much wear black. Um, you, you know, Peter, the thing I wanted to do for this interview in preparation uh-huh. for it was to watch the El Salvador video, and I didn't get to because the Lummis Gillibrand bill dropped, oh. so I had to deep dig into that. So I wanted to be able to be like, this is the most amazing thing ever. I did watch the trailer, though. I can't wait to watch it. Well, it's not too long. It's 35 minutes. It's um, a lot of good work went into it. I should give a shout out to Neil Berkeley, the director who worked on it. He reached out to me 
God, about a year ago, and he said, I, I like your work. I want, I want to do uh, some film work. I, I think we could work together. So he came out with me uh, with um, uh, director of photography, Kurt Taylor. Um, you know, we shot for a week and a half and made the film and, and uh, got the buzz. And we, uh, me and Danny picked out a number of locations. We think, I think we're going to try and do 10 more. Great. Yeah, I think Great. that's the next step. Is Are you going to enter in any competitions or anything like that? Not now, because they're going to be, they're not kind of, they're not kind of, uh, they're not kind of like film um, festival kind of type films. They're not yeah. full length documentaries. I intend each one to be like 30, 35 minutes, but not everyone will be a Bitcoin show. Mm-hmm. So the title we went with Follow the Money is that idea that we can expand a little bit outside of Bitcoin, talk about asymmetric subjects that people care about. I mean, we just had a show that went out with Lynn Alden uh, covering inflation, something we're going to talk about today. And, and I mean, it's, it's a huge show. It's already done like over 110,000 uh, listens or views on YouTube in two days. So there is this desire to learn about wider economic issues by Bitcoin people, but I also think it's a way to bring people into Bitcoin. Totally agree. We, uh, I think the next one we're going to do is probably in, in the UK covering the cost of living crisis. Great. Which is highly relevant again to what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. And uh, I think that maybe will orange pill some people. Well, thanks for doing all that work. It's important work. Well, look, thanks for everything you're doing. I was talking about before we started, I will recommend people sign up to the Free Up news, newsletter. Um, it's dense, full of content. It's very interesting content. It doesn't feel uh, politically motivated in any kind of uh, partisan way. Um, it feels like you guys are just trying to help with good policy. Thank you. You should, are. you should probably tell them about it. Sign up, by the way. Everyone sign up. It's fucking good. Thank you. Well, the, the think tank that I founded and run is called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which we abbreviate as FREOP, F-R-E-O-P-P, one E, not two, F-R-E-O-P-P dot O-R-G, FREOP.org. And our newsletter is, uh, we have a new newsletter on Substack, which we launched a few months ago called, you can get to substack.freeop.org. That'll get you to the main site. You could subscribe there and we're also on Twitter at FreeOp, and I'm personally on Twitter at AVIK. Get that all in there. <laughs> but but tell tell people about the work you guys actually do. How does the think tank work? Because that's uh, what we're going to be talking about today after we talk about the, the bill from Lummis and uh, Gillibrand. Is it yeah. Gillibrand or Gillibrand? Gillibrand, I'm pretty Gillibrand. sure. Gillibrand. Yeah. Talk about the work that you guys are doing. Like, What's the motivation here? Yeah, so uh, there are lots of different kinds of think tanks, but the, but the main category of think tanks are what we would what we would technically call public policy research organization means means we're we're looking into issues of importance to the country or the world uh, particularly economic issues but just issues of law issues of policy issues of regulation things where if you change a law or you change a regulation you can make a difference ideally for as many people as possible and in in our particular context our mission is to expand economic opportunity to those who least have it using the tools of economic freedom, technological innovation, individual liberty, and pluralism. So we're trying to say, hey, uh, things like Bitcoin, things like entrepreneurial innovation, if done the right way, can do a lot to improve the lives of lower and middle income Americans, people of lower uh, net worth. And not just Americans, obviously, in the case of Bitcoin, but but our focus is primarily on the United States. And the idea is that we can bridge this divide. You know, this conventional wisdom is out there that the left and the right hate each other and that for your team to win, the other team has to lose. And I think a lot of our work is oriented towards, actually, that's not true. There are ways to achieve progressive policy outcomes in which people have more social mobility and more financial security but do so in a way that creates more choice, more competition, more freedom. 
And and how do you work with uh, policymakers? Do you have direct connections with the teams that work for the senators and the people in Congress, or or do you? How does it work? I, I mean, I've got. Yeah. I know U.S. Uh, lobbying is a big thing in the U.S. Is is it considered lobbying? It's technically not considering lobbying what we do. So the the tax code actually is uh, specifies it. So there's different forms of organizations that can be nonprofit tax exempt organizations. Okay. And ours is called a 501c3. To be a 501c3, um, you have to not engage in lobbying or a very limited amount of lobbying. And lobbying is directly defined as you're lobbying for a specific piece of legislation, so a specific bill that's actually been introduced. You're saying, pass that bill, come members of Congress, and you out there in the public, you should call your congressmen to support this bill. That's called lobbying, for example. Or lobbying could be to advocate for the election or you know, rejection of a candidate based on their politics. So we don't do things like that. What we do is we are nonpartisan. We brief policymakers. So we have direct relationships with the senators, with the congressmen, with the people and, you know, the president's uh, uh, staff and and executive officers and their staff. So sometimes it'll be like Congress is having a hearing on Bitcoin or on healthcare policy or energy policy. And our scholars will be asked to testify before Congress in those hearings that if you're an American, you'll watch on C-SPAN, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or it could be that um, we're directly actually in a private setting briefing a member of Congress or his or her staff on uh, a member will come to us. A typical thing will be a member will say to us, hey, uh, Ovik, I'm really interested in this. I I, I read your newsletter. I saw this thing about um, the rising cost of housing. I want to do something about the rising cost of housing. If I wanted to introduce a bill to do something about housing, you know, what should I think about? What are the factors I should consider? What are some of the policy ideas you have for reducing the cost of housing? And so we'll walk them through some of our ideas and then they'll decide what to do with that. And stop BlackRock buying all the houses. Yeah, that would would help. So yeah, so like a lot of of it is kind of you could think of it as almost like a um, pro bono consultancy where okay. we're not being paid by the politicians or the people to help them. We we do it as a charitable function. They ask us for help. We give them technical advice, help them design policies that will advance hopefully their goals and ours, their, our mission, and then uh, we're supported entirely by donations. Oh wow! Okay. Well, listen, I love the work that you guys are doing, and it's been great to get you back on the show. I'm Thank sure you. you're going to be on a bunch of times. I think I'd like to try and get some other people within Free Up on. I think yeah. you've got some really great thinkers in there. I mean, I, I don't know their specific roles, but uh, like I say, every time I get the newsletter, I end up going down a couple of little rabbit holes of uh, different information. Well, we recently added David Zell, uh, the president or founder of the Bitcoin Policy Institute, who's, who's Is, uh, over here somewhere. David Zell here in the room with us. Uh, he's, he's now a fellow at Free Up as well. Doesn't didn't David didn't David Zell start a five hundred one c three or whatever it is? <laughs> yeah, he did. Well, we're gonna we got a we got we got David on tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's got he's roped me into his thing too. So I'm a senior advisor at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Oh, wow, well, the amount of stuff he's done before his 14th birthday is incredible. Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. He yeah. needs to slow down. Yeah, come on, man. Uh, okay, so we uh, we met up in Austin. Yeah, went for some food, and you told me you guys were writing a paper about inflation and yeah. how it disproportionately affects the poorest in society. And we are going to get onto that, but this paper has dropped. This mm-hmm. uh, bill by Senator Lummis from Wyoming and Senator Gillibrand, where's she from? Is she in New York? New York. New York, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, bipartisan bill, which uh, some people I've seen reject it today and be very cr- critical of it. Uh, I've seen others say, actually, this is great because we've got clarity now. Uh, for me, it feels like Senator Lummis, who is pro-Bitcoin, is trying to get at the head, head of the curve here and say, here's some positive legislation to help the industry you know, 
progress and flourish rather than allowing someone else to come in and be too negative. I haven't read the bill. Uh, I'm aware of some of the details, specifically the uh, $200 exemption for people to be able to make payments, which mm-hmm. is highly uh, very sensible. And I, I'm aware that there's an inflation clause in it, which is incredible. Um, and uh, but but you uh, you messaged us an hour ago, so we should get into this. So tell me what yeah. what you've seen within there. What's the good, the bad? What should we be uh, aware of? Yeah, so I've been I've been following this as many of us have uh, for some time because uh, obviously uh, Senator Lummis in particular, who who communicates with m- many of us in the Bitcoin community, has been sharing uh, that she's been working on this and uh, waiting for the, the the final one to drop. With uh, I think a block the block was it that dropped a draft of it mm-hmm. uh, a couple days ago that was from March. So to see the final version is is interesting and and just as a way of background, one of the things that happens with these bills is what they do is they'll they'll share it privately with lobbyists with stakeholders with trade associations so like the blockchain association or um, a coin center or maybe the even the bitcoin policy so they'll, they'll go to these various groups and they'll say hey you know we'd like your input on this they do you know they'll do that with free op as well uh, and people will give feedback and and they'll take some of that feedback and maybe not all of it and that helps shape the final version of the bill versus what uh, what they started with. And so what we see here, I think, uh, is, is really interesting. Uh, I would say that um, I'm still yet to go through the entire 69 pages of the bill. I've gone through the entire legislative summary. I've gone through some details of the full legislative text. It takes a while because legislative text is very technical. But I would say overall, the way I'd summarize it is it's better than I expected. Mm-hmm. So based on conversations I'd had uh, uh, on Capitol Hill with various people uh, prior to to the bill, dr- the final draft dropping, I was there were some things I was concerned about. I feel like overall, what I see from the bill is uh, a very clear definition of Bitcoin as a commodity, uh, whose spot price, you know, in, in terms of exchange and things, is going to be regulated by the CFTC. Not only will Bitcoin be regulated by the CFTC, but kind of a, a good proportion of the broader cryptocurrency landscape will be regulated by the CFTC. Anything that is not a security as defined in the legislation. So one thing that's really um, uh, has been a source of sort of a sore point in the broader crypto world, less so with Bitcoin, is um, this point about is, is something a security or not. I think what the what the bill does is create this regulatory framework now where Bitcoin has kind of got a free pass, where Bitcoin is not a security, the law basically makes that very clear. And this is one thing that's really important, particularly for the international audience that doesn't necessarily know this. There are There's a legislative hierarchy in the U.S. So there's the U.S. Constitution, which is the highest level of law. The next highest level of law are acts of Congress, meaning Congress actually votes on and passes a piece of legislation, and then the president signs it into law. The next level below that for federal law is what we might call regulations. So Congress passes a law, but leaves the details to the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Treasury Department or, you know, if it's not healthcare law, maybe it's health and human services or whatever it is. And they'll fill in with like thousand page documents that are lodged before the Federal Register. Okay, here's exactly in nitty gritty detail how this will work. Uh, And the reason I mention all that is that something that is uh, a regulation or say a Supreme Court precedent, that's one level of law. But if Congress passes a statute, then that uh, is very hard to change. Congress would have to pass another law to change it, or the Supreme Court would have to rule it as unconstitutional. So if this bill were to become law, 
then the legal status of Bitcoin as a commodity that is not regulated as a security, that has these various features, that has this $200 de minimis uh, transaction uh, 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 sandbox or, 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 or um, window, that would be very, pretty hard to change. And that would create a, um, a stability, a legal stability and recognition of Bitcoin that has not had to date. That would be pretty powerful, I feel like, for the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, and for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the clarity here, but yeah. also I think the US will lead the way here. I cannot see a scenario whereby uh, certainly Europe would see a solid argument for uh, making uh, the buy and sell of Bitcoin difficult against uh uh, the U.S. making, given this regulatory clarity, because it would just put Europe in a disadvantageous position. Uh, I think the U.K. is thankfully separate to that, and we are seeing some politicians come out and start to say a few things, pro-crypto, let's say, not just Bitcoin. I can think of at least three politicians, but I think it puts Europe in a very tricky position if uh, if the U.S. gets this clarity regarding it. I have got a bunch of questions. Go ahead. So if it falls under the CFTC, what does it actually mean? Like, what does it actually mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So again, this is one of those things where uh, it's helpful to define some of the landscape. So the the legacy financial system has a bunch of different government, aid in the U.S., has a bunch of different government agencies that regulate it. Most places, that's not the case. In most countries, there's a single regulatory body that basically has regulatory oversight over stocks, securities, bonds, commodities like oil futures or, or wheat futures um, and digital assets like Bitcoin. It's all part of one agency. And so it's pretty easy for that one agency to kind of do what it needs to do, positively or negatively. In the U.S., the biggest problem and a big part of why Bitcoin regulation and crypto regulation more broadly has, has been a big problem in the U.S. is that there are actually several different agencies whose jurisdiction somewhat overlaps. And CFTC, so, SEC, yeah, so CFTC stands for the Commodities Futures and Trade Commission, and then there's the Securities and Exchange Commission, and then there's the Treasury Department, which is sort of separate from all that. All of them have jurisdiction to a degree over Bitcoin. So, for example, the tax treatment of Bitcoin is regulated by the Treasury Department. Um, Bitcoin being a commodity means that, uh, in theory, the way it should work is exchanges that trade Bitcoin should be, they are commodity exchanges, at least in the context of trading Bitcoin, and in theory should be regulated by the CFTC. But the SEC has also waded into this because the SEC doesn't want to be left out of this conversation. It's kind of a turf war or land grab where the SEC commissioners, the SEC leaders, no, no, this is our turf. We're going to ones who are going to regulate, say, a uh, an ETF, which is technically a security and exchange traded fund based on Bitcoin. But a big part of why the SEC is held up the approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF is because the spot market for Bitcoin is today not, it's not clearly regulated by any one of these different alphabet soup agencies that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So if all of a sudden you have a situation where the Commodities Futures and Trade uh, Trade Commission is, uh, is, is explicitly charged with regulating the spot Bitcoin market, even though it's obviously a global market where there's exchanges all over the place, all over the world, then the SEC doesn't have that uh, excuse anymore. There is a regulated market for uh, for Bitcoin. In fact, what the C- CFTC could do is say, we certify these, you know, twenty or ten or five or hundred exchanges as 
you know, regulated by the CFTC, you know, compliant with our regulations about KYC, AML, that kind of stuff. And you can use the blended volume weighted average price of Bitcoin on those markets to build your ETF. I see. I see. Because it, okay, that makes sense. So Kraken, Coinbase, Gemini, maybe even River, whoever is trading, will they have to become regulated? Or could you be an unregulated exchange and your price is included? Or will you will you have to legally be regulated? If this if this bill were to become a law, then you know, you could obviously have exchanges that are not regulated by the CFTC that are offshore. Yeah, but right? within the US. But even. within the US, if you wanted to be a US domiciled company, you'd have to basically register with the CFTC, which has historically been friendlier uh, to crypto than the SEC, at least in the last five to 10 years. Um, and so, and the CFTC in general, because they're very accustomed to dealing with these kinds of products in the in the kind of physical world, like uh, mm. you know, again the wheat futures and the coffee beans and whatnot. For anyone who's uh, who's uh, who hasn't watched Trading Place, is a classic '80s yeah, movie about it. a movie about commodities trading. Have you seen that, Danny? No. Do you, oh, yeah. do you even know what it's about? I mean, Trading Place sounds like it's about trading, but I've got no. So idea. So this is an old Eddie Murphy film, right? And he's uh, he's homeless, and uh, he's uh, a bit of a hustler on the street. And these two old, really old kind of uh, commodities traders uh, have a bet. And they have a bet whether they can turn him into a successful uh, commodities trader. Uh, turns out the bet was like, was it a dollar? It was a dollar. It's a yeah. dollar. And so they get Eddie Murphy. It's kind of spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> and they throw him in the back of his taxi. Uh, and then uh, he starts explaining how poor people think and what that impact that has on prices. So they end up... Uh, uh, turning him into a, a trader, and he he goes from like homeless, and he's like, I'm blind, I'm blind. He's on that little thing, pulling yeah, yeah. himself, cart pulling himself around. He gets all suited, booted, becomes a successful trader. But but in doing so, he they forgets. also make one of the the waspy successful traders. Yeah. They basically fire him and make him homeless. Yeah, that was um, Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd, yeah, yeah Dan Aykroyd, and. Um, uh, so Dan Aykroyd goes to being homeless and like stealing, and uh, Eddie Murphy becomes super successful. Uh, but he then forgets his roots, uh, and and then they end up coming together, don't they? Yeah, they kind of. Yeah, it they, sounds like they, the most '80s movie of all. It time. is. It's, it's a great it's '80s movie, brilliant. and it's very entertaining. And it does actually a decent job of explaining how commodity trading works. So it's if you want sort of a, features, right? Is the orange features? I think it was like yeah, foreign frozen concentrated orange juice was, yeah. plays a central role in the plot. So anyway, all this to say that if you want to understand commodities trading in an entertaining two-hour film, go watch Trading Places, and it'll give you some sense of what the CFTC regulates. I've been to the CFTC. Ah. Yeah, I interviewed Brian Quintens in there. There you go. Yeah, and I've been to the SEC. I interviewed Hester Purse there. Um, very intimidating places. <laughs> uh, but that's great. So so what you're saying is there is a path now here for for exchanges to be regulated and therefore for the uh, for a, a spot ETF to be launched, which the SEC itself can also then regulate it because they have the prices from the regulated exchanges. And I guess the regulation will have some kind of restrictions uh, upon the exchanges and requirements for reporting, right. and there will be KYC, AML, and all that stuff. And again, like you know, hardcore anarcho libertarians will say, "Oh, that's you know, it's terrible that we have that." But I would say that um, there's no way in the context of a society like ours for legitimate Bitcoin businesses. Legitimate, the word literally means legal, right? Legitimate um, for legal businesses to operate and ex- and interact with the fiat world unless you have some of these rails in place. And so that's really important. So those are some of the really encouraging things about the bill from what I can see. There are some elements that are sort of neutral and some elements that I'm more concerned about. So the neutral elements are, one thing I was really uh, worried about over the last several months um, 
is how the the bill was going to treat CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which we've talked about before, mm-hmm. and I'm very concerned about as a as a uh, uh, a venue for totalitarianism and, and the surveillance state in the U.S. and um, original versions of the bill, under my understanding, were going to at least imply that the Fed would be, you know, they were going to kind of give some sort of license or permission to the Fed to build a CBDC that would be, quote unquote, limited in scope to just Fed interaction with the big banks. And I just, um, I was very concerned and, and, and made this opinion known uh, uh, to the relevant people that uh, that. The, that's a, that's very risky because if you let the Federal Reserve build a CBDC that can interact with only like J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo or whatever, it's very easy to go from that to something that then replaces the digit the U.S. dollar and is and everyone is required, every American is required to to use. Uh, once you've actually done the hard work of building the ninety percent version of the CBDC, going from ninety percent to one hundred percent is very easy. And so, though I still need to dig through the text to make sure this is the case, I'm I'm encouraged and hopeful that uh, the bill is not is is it does not explicitly encourage a CBDC. I was also hoping the the bill would explicitly prohibit the Federal Reserve from building a CBDC. Make that very clear that that's not in the Federal Reserve's mandate. The bill does not do that in its current form. What it does do is it creates a uh, it requires uh, the Fed and relevant people to to basically do a study of the Chinese CBDC to see what are the, you know, what are its features or what are its risks, et cetera, in, in privacy and in other ways. Well, I would hope we wouldn't be taking tips from the Chinese model for uh, surveillance capital. Yeah, l- let's hope so. Uh, you know, there, there are differing views in the Fed about this. There are people in the Fed who are very excited about CBDC. So all that to say that the language uh, on CBDCs in the bill, from what I've seen, is is better than I expected in that it's not pro-CBDC, but it's not anti-CBDC either. It's sort of neutral. Let's study the issue and see what goes on. But that's better than it was before. So I see that as an improvement, but still sort of neutral. Um, there's also a, a directive for, for government agencies to study the energy consumption of proof of, proof of work, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so that's going to be something for, for all of us who uh, believe that proof of work is an important feature for Bitcoin to, to keep an eye on. Well, I also think, look, with regards to proof of work, the trend is to be that miners are moving towards more uh, renewable forms of energy. And I know people would be like, don't acquiesce to this. Um, But at the same time, there are, I believe, and others uh, believe, and Andrew Deslow, we had on the show yesterday, climate scientists believe that uh, we are warming the planet is an issue. So like, I think a study is fair. I just think we shouldn't be, um, for example, how Nick Carter highlighted the 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 regulations in New York, they're essentially picking and winning, uh, picking who can, uh, which states, what safety centers can do. It's right. essentially the thing. So I, I, as long as it's a study and then there's some intelligence behind it and they don't uh, start, um, I don't know, start penalizing miners or banning miners from using certain sources of fuel, because I think that's hard to enforce anyway, especially if the miners are buying from a grid which has a mixed source of input. Um, okay, fine. Well, listen, uh, progress and clarity and... Um, uh, it's a place I never thought we would be in. I, I, I always felt like, you know, four, five years ago, I was trading Bitcoin. I always felt like there's going to come a time where they're going to clamp down on this. But actually, yeah. Well, that's that's why this bill is really important because, um, you know, th- having 
there's this term regulatory clarity. You hear it in mm-hmm. think tank circles a lot. And it it does matter because if you're trying to start a business, you've got your 1031 hat yep. on, 1031 invest in Bitcoin businesses, right? If you're trying to start a business in the Bitcoin space, you really want to know if what you're doing is legal or not. That's pretty important. If you're going to ask other people to give you hundreds of millions of dollars, hopefully, to, to start this business and get it going, they don't want to throw their money down the drain if that business is going to turn out to be illegal because some commissioner at the SEC woke up on the wrong side of the bed that, that day, right? So having clarity is incredibly important to businesses. And if we want there to be a robust ecosystem of Bitcoin businesses that serve our community, then it's really important to have regulatory clarity. It will be interesting to see what comes out as a commodity. Um, I think we all agree with regards to Bitcoin that um, it passes the Howey test or fails. I'm never sure. sure to you know what uh, I'm Bitcoin, asking. Bitcoin, uh, yes, I guess Bitcoin passes the Howey test in the sense that it's not a security. Yeah. It, 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 you know, if, if that's the way we're going to define it. But the Howey test, just to be for people who don't know, I mean, and many of your followers will know, but the Howey test is a. It was a Supreme Court case uh, from 1934, if I recall correctly, about orange grows and. You know, that that basically, that ruling for the Supreme Court, which was, I think, a 5-4 ruling. It may have been 6-3, but it wasn't a unanimous ruling. But it's like, basically, that kind of a law of unintended consequences became the defining legal framework for what is a security and what isn't. It defines the SEC's authority because the Securities and Exchange Commission was created by the Securities and Exchange Act of 1933. And so, basically, all the law around what is a security and what what isn't the SEC would claim is defined by that Supreme Court case. But the Supreme Court case is kind of vague and not really well written in that in that sense. And so it's been really tough for, um, you know, the Bitcoin slash digital asset world to, to, to navigate that. And I think this bill will really sort of nail it down and say, okay, Bitcoin is not a security. Bitcoin spot market will be regulated by the CFTC. And that then allows for so many more products. Uh, there could be a real explosion of opportunities for, for people who want to start new businesses. Uh, and I think Ethereum, they would make a good argument that it also uh, passes the how it tested. It isn't a security. Uh, it, it was discussed before a couple of years ago uh, where it was kind of the belief that it may have been a security, but it isn't now. Um, I'm not sure where, where it will really go with a lot of these other shitcoins. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of them. I'm not a fan of the rug pulls. I'm not a fan of uh, the unknown information. Um, and it's going to put a lot of these projects in the future in a position where they're going to have to provide a lot of clarity. Some people are obviously very against uh, growth of the state and anti-regulation. Uh, I do think there will be some regulatory protection to investors around some of these shitcoins, basically. Yeah, I think this is a, an important and I think underappreciated element of the regulatory trajectory which is that Bitcoin is pretty clearly not a security, not merely because the government has said so on many occasions, and this bill does as well, but just, again, by the by the, the Howey test and some of these legal traditions in the U.S., there is no management. There is no, you know, there's it just doesn't meet the test, very clearly doesn't meet the test of a security. Ether is a bit of a middle case, as, as you alluded to, but Bitcoin clearly is not a security. And so... All these different crypto projects, which get buzzed because people sort of look at that and say, well, I can make 1,000x my money on on random crypto shitcoin, but I'm, I don't know if I'll make 1,000x my money on Bitcoin. And so they all kind of gravitate there. It's more speculatively interesting. But the problem is it's, uh, there's a lot of downside, not just in the price of those assets, but also in the regulatory landscape for those assets, because they are going to get regulated in most cases as securities. And that is going to really limit their 
upside relative to something like Bitcoin was trying, which is obviously is and is trying to be the hardest money ever built. Does that put some of the exchanges in a difficult position? Because uh, we'll give a pass to Bitcoin and Ethereum just just for now. If uh, if these are securities, does that mean people involved in the projects have to register them as securities? Or if they want to launch one, they have to launch them as a security, and therefore every exchange will essentially only be able to list those that are a registered security. Well, um, it'll be a mix. So there will be some that that will be defined as the law, uh, the, the the bill, uh, the 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 um, Lummis Gillibrand bill, uh, which I think is called the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. Uh, that that bill actually says there's going to be basically three classes. Okay. Class number one is a security defined as such by basically the Howey test. They basically codify into congressionally legislated. Uh, action uh, statute, what a security is. Then there's a sort of middle group, which they call ancillary assets. And a lot of crypto would fall under the bill under ancillary assets, meaning they're not exactly securities like the way a stock, like a, you know Apple stock is a security or a bond is a security. Because you have this thing, it is actively managed by some group of people at a corporation, but because you have no ownership share in the crypto project, it's not actually a security the way it is if you like if you buy apple stock you have an ownership share however small in apple the company that isn't necessarily true with a lot of these crypto projects right you don't actually have an ownership share so there's a there's a kind of a list of definitions of things that if you don't pass this test you're not a security you're called an ancillary asset which would also be under the bill regulated by the CFTC not the SEC but would be required to have a lot of disclosures around your risk factors and who's behind it and what assets you hold. And you'd have to have rules around what happens if you go bankrupt and how you dispose of your assets. So there would be a lot of regulation around those ancillary assets, which would encompass a good chunk of crypto that would effectively protect, could protect consumers a lot in the sense of saying there would be this legal document like there is with an IPO. If there's an IPO today of a, a normal stock, then there's this long document called an S1 that they, the company has yeah. to file with the Securities and Exchange Commission that lists all the risk factors that the legal department can conceivably come up with as to why you might lose money in this investment. And that's I think that's a good rule. It creates confidence in the market because you know you've got that to look at. If they misrepresent something in that legal disclosure, you can be sued. That's why it has the, the power that it has, that they actually have to do it the right way. So all that to say that a lot of these projects are going to get heavily regulated, whether they're securities or ancillary assets. They're going to be regulated. They're going to be required to disclose their, their uh, risk factors. They're going to have to have a, 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 a kind of a bankruptcy plan. And that's going to mean that there's a lot more maturity in that market for good. I think it means that the, the best projects, the projects that actually have merit, that aren't shit coins or at least have some sort of financial utility to them, will will continue to succeed. And the ones that are just get-rich-quick schemes or, or rug pulls will, will have a harder time. So either way, it's, it's really a boom for Bitcoin because the regulatory clarity for Bitcoin allows makes it easy for people to invest in it. Yep. And the... The rules regarding uh, whether something's a security is probably going to limit the amount of projects that are available to invest in. Uh, if this legis- we'll talk about the process for passing, but if the legislation passes, what kind of period of time would have exchanges have to respond to this? I mean, if it if it's codified into law and uh, Bitcoin is a uh, regulated by the CFTC, do they have a period of grace? Is there a, a period of time we're figuring out what uh, regulation for exchanges? How does that all work? 
So um, they during the, the legislative process, they are free, like anyone is, to speak out about their position. About, uh, so Coinbase or Kraken can say, hey, here's what we think about the bill. They can go directly. They can call up or meet with Senator Lummis and actually tell her directly or Senator Gillibrand or any, any other senator who, who's thinking about voting for the bill, whether they support it or not. Because the bill actually has to be introduced. It's, in, it's been introduced into Congress formally. That's what they did today as we're recording this uh, podcast. But the um, but then in order for it to actually pass Congress, the Senate Majority Leader would have to actually say, okay, we're going to have a vote on this bill, and then it would have to overcome a filibuster, meaning at least sixty people would have to vote in the Senate out of a hundred to move uh, close debate, and then have a final vote, and then a majority. 50 plus the vice president at minimum would have to support the bill. And then it would also have to pass the house and then it would have to also be signed by the president. So a right. lot of steps to go through just to get it passed. And through all that process, um, these various stakeholders or interests can voice their position. In fact, um, uh, Senator Lummis's office released a, a six page document that had a bunch of quotes from a lot of the trade associations like uh, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, et cetera, so, you know, and Kraken and Coinbase and FTX and some others saying, expressing their general support for the bill or at least the, the process behind it. So, so all that how, is out there. How long would that all take, generally, usually? Uh, it, could t- it, could, it could take years. It could take months. It all okay. depends really on whether um, the, Senate, Senate really, the Senate majority leader wants to, to, to put it forward. And I, I, would, I would say we just don't know right now. I think if there's a lot of support, if, if like there are 70 or 80 senators who say, this bill is awesome, I'm all for it, let's do this, then it could pass in the next several months. But uh, the more likely scenario is that people are going to study it. They're going to think about it. They're not going to see any urgency to do anything about it. And it's going to really fall to the next Congress, meaning after the midterm elections in 2022, the following Congress comes in January 3rd of 2023. And it may be in the in, in the following year where, where they try to push it. Or it could be that this thing just kind of dangles and, and, and just kind of sits there and lingers for a long time without it getting the majority support. So it all depends on how many senators support it. And obviously it would be up to, if the Bitcoin community decides it's something they want to support, then, you know, they, they would need to, to make that uh, uh, point known to their members of Congress. But um, uh, all that to say that there's no guaranteed timeline. It's not like if two senators introduce a bill, then it gets voted on a month after that or 60 days after that or whatever. Uh, it could never pass Congress. It could pass Congress five years from now. It could pass Congress in a month. It all depends on uh, that group of senators all deciding what they want to do. And then uh, after the bill passes, then the regulators come in. So then the CFTC, now that it has this new authority, would then be have to issue regulations to say, okay, here's how you would implement this law. The SEC would have to do the same on their end and the Treasury Department, et cetera. So then those regulations come out, what, what are typically called um, interim uh, regulations, and then people comment. They have a certain amount of time to comment on those regulations formally through a, a website that, the, that the, the, the government puts out. And then uh, the relevant agency reviews those comments, decides whether to take into account or not, and then based on that, they revise the regulations or keep them the same. And they're required by law to do that. If they don't honor that process, uh, you can sue the government and say, hey, you, you pass this regulation without... Um, having this process of, of notice and comment. And if you don't do that, then you, the, the, the courts could throw out the regulation. And that does happen from time to time. 
Does it help that it's a bipartisan bill? Is that quite a regular thing? Because I, I, I don't feel like I've seen anything that feels bipartisan for a long time. Uh, there are a lot of bipartisan bills that that pass Congress that you just never hear about because the right. media is never going to cover the stuff that's not controversial. They're only going right. to cover the stuff where one side or the other you know hates it. So, uh, so that's part of it. And I think this is an unusual case where it's a bipartisan bill that there's a community like ours that really is very interested in it. So it's going to get more coverage. But um, having said that, I do, uh, I am very encouraged by the fact that at least in the interviews I've seen of Senator Gillibrand, um, she's very, she has as much ownership and, uh, and endorsement and support of the bill's contents as Lummis does. And that's, that's important because, you know, we've talked about this before. There's, there's a real risk that um, that Bitcoin becomes more of a partisan issue because just that's just the nature of the U.S. political system. Things become tribal and become more polarized, and it's important that it not be that way because Bitcoin is something that can improve the lives of everyone, and and we don't want it to be seen. At least I don't want it to be seen as an issue that where where it's, where only one side thinks that it's good for them. Now, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, but they are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for nine months with Compass now, and I've already mined 0.66 Bitcoin, which has paid off two of my S19s already. Now, any of you can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched their Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors like price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes Bitcoin mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right. We're hodlers. We're not sellers. I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. So all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. I'm excited to announce my new sponsor, Cake Wallet, who I've recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share your important information with unnecessary third parties. And with Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching, and the app is designed to make it super easy to set up your wallet and back up your private keys. Now, if you want to find out more and check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google App Stores. Also, we have BCB Group. BCB Group provides online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a bank, and they also understand Bitcoin. And they reached out to me, so I've moved my business banking across to BCB, and I could not be happier. 
BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Okay, great. Well, listen, thank you for that update. That's very useful. Let's see what happens. Uh, I think it's promising. It's quite surreal uh, as a Bitcoiner to see it. But uh, yeah, uh, congratulations to Senator Lumbers for her good work and also uh, Senator Gillibrand. Okay, so we we originally went to talk about inflation. We've had a nice big intro ahead yeah. of that. Um, big issue at the moment. We've been talking, you and I have talked about it for a few, a few months. You put the paper out. Uh, uh, excellent article. Um, Thank you. The, the thing that really stood out to me, we put the quote in there, was uh, actually it's not just inflation, it's inflation inequality. Yeah. Um, we put the quote in here. For all the talk about income inequality, we need to have a matching discussion about inflation inequality. Uh, it's something I talked about, kind of talked about with Eric Weinstein. He said, um, inflation is really relative. Um, inflation affects people in different ways. And this CPI print really is useful as a benchmark, but it's not useful to the individuals. I, th- I think it's pretty common talk amongst most people these days is that whatever print we're seeing, we're seeing much higher inflation ourselves. UK fuel prices hit record highs today, went up to pound seventy-eight pence a litre, which works out at 10 $10.15 a gallon. It's crazy. Uh, and the only reason it's not higher is that the pound has been falling against the dollar. Um, I think it's lost about 10%. Uh, but it looks like we're heading to £2 a litre, which, again, is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, my uh, car got, used to cost £80 to fill up. It's over £100 now, and it's going higher. That affects a lot of people. Uh, but it affects people in different ways, and also the second, uh, third order effects. So... Uh, Yes, a really interesting topic to get into. Uh, like Danny said, everyone's talking about inflation now. This is this wasn't something I've ever talked about prior to running a Bitcoin show. Uh, now I run a Bitcoin show, but everyone else is talking to me about it. My friends, I even talked to my kids about inflation. So it's really become part of the the conversation. Um, you guys wanted to attack this, and you wanted to attack inflation inequality. What was the background to this? Yeah, a great question, and thanks for all the the kind words about the paper. Uh, so the one thing that we discovered right away when we started FreeOp in 2016 is that if you have the lens that we have declared that we want to have, which is we exclusively work on policy problems or reform ideas that would meaningfully improve the lives of Americans whose incomes or wealth are below the U.S. median. That's test number one. Test number two is our reform ideas should be ideas that embrace the principles of free enterprise, individual liberty, technological innovation, pluralism. So if, if, if you look at those two tests and say, what, where's the intersection there? Because the whole idea is how do we get Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives to work together to solve important problems? That's, that's why we have that lens. So if you look at, if you look at um, the, the landscape with that lens or with those two tests, we find that a lot of the work that really uh, comes out of, the, of meeting those two tests is around the cost of living. Not merely inflation in the way we normally think about it, read about it in the newspaper, where the CPI print is this and the Federal Reserve does that, or other central banks around the world, but a more, but also this, the microeconomic conversation about 
inflation. So if we if we were if we were to talk about inflation, we could break the inflation conversation into two categories. There's the microeconomic uh, category of subcategory of inflation, which is stuff like zoning laws that restrict the growth and the supply of housing, leading to increase in price of housing. Because if you don't allow new housing to be built and the population grows and people get wealthier, then you know that price of houses is going to get bid up. Right? That's an example of microeconomic inflation. Then there's macroeconomic inflation, which is a thing we in the Bitcoin world talk about a lot, which is the supply of money as controlled by central banks and things like that. So uh, both categories of inflation are important. And a lot of our work outside of the macro space deals with that. So we talk a lot about healthcare inflation. We talked about that a lot in our last uh, conversation uh, for your podcast. You know, there's housing inflation, there's higher education inflation, college and, and vocational school and all that. All these things, that the prices are skyrocketing because of dumb regulations or subsidy schemes that have created artificial scarcity or artificial demand that that have that have made these products more expensive for everyday people and when you're poor or when you're low income if you're making 20 30,000 dollars a year or 10,000 dollars a year those prices affect you even more right so if if the price of gas like you were pointing out goes up by double and you have to drive to to any sort of job you might take cuz you live in that part of the country then that extra $100 a week or $200 a week you're spending, you don't have that $100 to $200. So where's that coming out of in your in your household budget, right? So that's something that we note, we've noticed for years as a major concern. And I'd say about 70% of our work revolves around the cost of living. About 30% is things like criminal justice reform or education reform that aren't directly about cost of living. They're about economic growth or economic opportunity. But 70% is cost of living. So something we've been following for a long time then you throw onto that or layer onto those just baseline problems we've had as a country with what happened during COVID, where we spent $6 trillion in relief dollars through Congress, COVID relief dollars, and then the Fed came in and printed another 6 to $8 trillion in, in new dollars, U.S. dollar quantity. So you put those things together, and there was this macroeconomic inflation effect on top of all the other things that we were just talking about. And so we... Um, uh, and over this time period, we, we've grown, we've added new scholars, and so we added two really outstanding um, uh, macroeconomic scholars. Uh, uh, one is John Hartley, who's a PhD student at Stanford at the economics department there. The other is Jackson Mejia, who is a PhD student at MIT in the economics department there. So they, uh, they and I, we, uh, we said we wanted, to, we wanted to track this particular problem of how uh, about how, the, because no one else has been doing the work. No one else has been doing the work of, you, you see CPI, this print comes out, you read about it in the newspaper, and no one's talking about the fact that the whole point of CPI is it's the average consumer. CPI is affecting the average person in this average way. And we could have a whole uh, episode on whether CPI accurately measures the average consumer, but even if you take it at face value and say, okay, well, let's stipulate for a moment that CPI is accurately measuring the average consumer. And again, I don't believe that it is. I don't think you do either. But nope. let's just let's just stipulate that for the moment for the sake of argument. What about the below average consumer? What about the above average consumer? If you take the government's official data, how does inflation affect different populations? That was the thing that we wanted to study in this paper. And one of the things that that one of the reasons why this has not been studied before, I think, is because the people who are the most dovish about monetary policy in the U.S. and around the world are typically people on the left. The people who are hawkish are typically people on the right. That's not exactly true. It doesn't always map that way, but that's often the case. And 
And so what's interesting is people on the left are the ones you are normally t- talking about inequality. And yet here you have a situation where the policy that, you know, left-leaning macroeconomists, Keynesian macroeconomists tend to want to favor, which is more monetary stimulus, uh, it's their policy that's leading to more inequality. And so we wanted to measure this because no one else had really done it. And so uh, Jackson and John went through and basically crunched the data using official Bureau of Labor Statistics figures on inflation, CPI, and said, okay, let's break this down a number of different ways. So the first way to break down is actually the BLS doesn't just measure the average CPI. They actually measure uh, indirectly non-average CPI. So what do I mean by that? So to measure the consumer price index, what the government is doing is saying, okay, we theorize that the average consumer buys X amount of groceries, Y amount of rent for housing or, 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 or uh, owning a home, Z amount of transportation costs, et cetera. So you go through the bucket of things that people normally have in their household budget. As a percentage of their budget or as a total number? Both, as a, as a total number and as a percentage of their budget. So they measure that based on a survey they do. They actually literally like poll people and ask them, okay, how much do you spend on X? Or sometimes they use different, different techniques, but they basically compile all these surveys of pricing data and of what consumers actually spend money on. And it's a very technical process that they use to, to come up with this. But then they come up with this average. Just a bit, quick question in there. Um, looking at the poorest in society, and then, I'm not sure how you answer this, but what kind of percentage of their income is disposable? So what I'm trying to understand, how much leeway is in their, in their budget? Yeah, that's a great question and a very important question. So the answer, the short answer is zero, right? Like if okay. you are, if you are, that's what I assume. If you're in the bottom quintile, so the BLS typically breaks this data out into fifths. Are you in the bottom quintile of income, the second lowest, the middle, the second highest, or the highest? They measure it in more detail than that, but usually in terms of the most digestible things they send out, they divide it into these five groups of even even numbers of people uh, based on their incomes. And what you find is that uh, you find a couple of things. And we have the chart, actually, Danny, if you want to pull it up, um, it's the chart, I believe, that's called Consumer Basket. Uh, yeah, consumption by consumption, consumer expenditures by income quintile. You can pull that up on the screen so for people who are watching the video, they could see this. And so what this chart is showing you, and I know it's hard to read the, the little numbers and things like that, but the, the yellow at the bottom is what people in each of the quintiles are spending on housing. So 40, uh, the bottom quintile spends 43% of their income on housing. The highest quintile, even though they have bigger houses and more expensive houses, spends only 32% of their income on well, housing. The highest quintile, what kind of, what's the kind of lowest uh, income bracket? That uh, I'm trying to remember what the dollar cutoff is. I want to say it's about uh, $100,000 a year, something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it's in that in that range, I believe. Oh, right. So it might be higher than So that. the highest quintile is everyone from 100000 to billionaires. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 obviously spending more on their housing, but uh, but you know, as a share of their overall income, it's less. And the the category that you see the the kind of light blue category where it's much bigger for the highest quintile and the smallest quintile, that's um, personal insurance products like life insurance and things like that. Where obviously, if you're wealthy, you you want to have life insurance because you've got a lot of wealth to preserve and you have the ability to, you have disposable income to spend on things like life insurance, which average uh, or lower income people do not. So those are some examples in the chart of like what where the consumption basket is different. And so why does that matter? It matters because if the price of housing goes up a lot compared to the price of life insurance, 
than lower income people as a percentage of their consumption, not as a dollar amount, as a percentage of their consumption, it's going to go up, right? So like what I mean by that is, you know, if the, if, you know, the, the $200 to, to put it, you know, to put it that way, if it goes up by, or the, if your gas prices go up by double, right? Um, and bottom income, in, quintile people are spending more of their income on gas, then the percentage that inflation is, the CPI for that population is higher. And so we have a chart. Uh, I don't think it's in one of the charts I sent you, uh, Danny, but there's a, um, there's a chart called the Free Op Misery Index by Income Decile. If you click on that, you'll see, you'll see this. So this, what this is showing you is the, the blue is the bottom decile. The misery index. Yeah, so the misery God. index is an old term from the 70s during the uh, President Carter years where they added the inflation rate, CPI, and the unemployment rate. And said, okay, what's the what's the combination? And in the Carter years, it, it exceeded like twenty five percent, and it's now uh, it's now relatively low because unemployment uh, is relatively low. But if you look at this chart, what this chart is showing you is the the light blue is the bottom decile, and the dark blue, which is next below, is the next bottom decile, and the the bottom category is the orange and the light orange. Those are the wealthiest deciles or highest earning deciles. And what you see is inflation, both inflation inflation plus employment, is much lower. For those lower income groups or higher income groups, excuse me, versus the lower, if you're if you're poor, if you're in the bottom quintile, you face higher inflation, higher unemployment. And so, what does that mean? So, this is just on a year-on-year basis. So, like if you look at say 2020, um, you know the combination of unemployment plus inflation for, a, for someone in the bottom decile is like 21 percent. For the highest decile, it's like four percent or five percent. Right. Okay. That's the difference. Now, that's in a given year. Now, imagine if you accumulate that year over year, and this is really the powerful thing. So now if you go to cumulative income growth adjusted for income-based inflation. Okay, got that. So I apologize if you're on the podcast and you're listening to this. You can, you can find all these charts at the FreeOp website, freeop.org. The title of the paper is Inflation's Compounding uh, effect on the poor. We'll, we'll put them in the show notes. Anyone listening, and also we'll actually put them on the video as well. So if you if you do want to see this, you can go onto YouTube. Great. So what this chart is showing you is um, the the blue line or the blue curve is how cumulatively inflation affects the bottom decile versus the top decile. So that means let's say you spent a uh, hundred dollars of expenditures in 1978 as someone in the bottom bottom decile. And you stayed in the bottom income decile throughout the next, uh, you know, forty years. Um, how 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 much uh, have you uh, how much have you basically made? Like, how much has your income grown relative to inflation? So, if you've adjusted for inflation, so how much has your have your wages grown minus what inflation has been? Again, according to official government statistics, and according to official government statistics, from 1978 to 2021. Your wages on an inflation-adjusted basis grew four percent total, not four percent per year. Four percent total over a forty-three-year period, which is effectively nothing, mm-hmm. right? Over that same period, in the top decile, your income grew eighty-one percent total over those forty-three years. And what, so, what this chart is showing you is that grow wealth divide. Yeah, and, and and that's a wealth divide. By the way, that's not just like we're talking. You know, we've talked. Inflation's a hot topic today because inflation's at 8%. Yeah. But inflation over the course of our lives has mostly been low, according to what we think of as low inflation, 2%, 3%, et cetera. That has been seen as a policy success 
by the Federal Reserve. That's been seen as a policy success by most mainstream economists. But what we show in this paper, and this is the real kind of aha moment for this paper, is that even periods of low inflation, compounded year over year over year over year over year, lead to massive wealth inequality. Because if you're wealthy, you've benefited in a lot of different ways from inflation. You have a stock portfolio, which grows in inflationary environments. Your home that you own grows in inflationary environments. So your assets grow. But if you're poor, you don't have assets. And so you're only surviving on the wages that you get. And those wages have not been growing. So all this to say that the the message we are trying to send with this paper is over time, compounded over time, over a long period of time, even very small differences in CPI from the lowest uh, brackets to the highest brackets grow and grow and grow and create massive income and wealth inequality. That's problem number one. Um, and problem number two is that's true even in periods of low inflation. So that says two things to me right now. It's uh, Firstly, it, there is a real cost of living crisis that that causes. Yeah. Um, if you have no disposable income or little disposable income, you're essentially having to juggle your income. And what what we know happens in the UK right now, because I've been looking into this for the next film, is that we have people going into fuel poverty, so they can't pay their fuel right. bills. Uh, we have people who are skipping meals so they can feed their kids. Look, right. We've got real-world difficult decisions that people are having to face, which ultimately will lead to civil unrest. Uh, actually, it leads to two things. Firstly, yeah. it's leading to a government reaction where we're, we're having our own form of stimulus coming in in terms of fuel subsidies, which really are stick and plaster over a gaping wound. And then not totally. work. But they compound the, based on what you said, they're going to compound yeah. the problem because it's going to lead to further inflation anyway. Totally. Um, so there's, there's that, those real world issues right now. But what also is happening is that the reality for some of these people to actually start owning assets or uh, it's, it's being pushed away from them. And we know that's real because I know when my parents were of a similar age to I was, uh, they didn't. They, my dad was an aircraft engineer and my mum was an Avon lady. Uh, but but it was possible for them to own a house. Yeah, totally. It, it was totally possible for them to own yeah. a house. They, they, it was uh, a middle-class aspiration, it, legitimate middle-class aspiration. But the, yeah, I'm, I'm, but my parents weren't even middle-class. They were working-class. Mm-hmm. They could own a, a house. class aspiration. They had, right? they had a pension. Mm-hmm. You know, they had everything they need. I know now... Uh, when my kids, whenever they leave university, they're not going to be able to afford a house, even with good jobs, because because everything's been pushed further away from them. Absolutely, and 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 this is what you're highlighting. You're highlighting two things that are really important. The first is that inflation is an incredibly politically potent issue because of the fact that it is so regressive in its impact, because it disproportionately affects middle and lower income people. They are the ones who get the most upset, and there are more of them than there are wealthy people. So when you do something that's highly regressive in its effects, which inflation is, there is often civil unrest. There certainly is a desire to punish the people in charge. Um, and, and so that's very important for the for Washington to understand, which is a big part of why we wrote this paper to say, hey, Federal Reserve, like you have this bubble in which, you know, you think everything is good because, you know, or at least up to recently, you think everything's been good because inflation was 2% or 3% and, and that's hunky-dory for you. Uh, but it's not. Actually, even 2 to 3% inflation is too high over a long enough time frame for people who are lower income. So our goal is to help to start the, the, the conversation with the Fed. What the Fed is very, at this point in time, very insulated from... Uh, 
outside points of view. They do get a lot of input in the sense that there are a lot of people sending the Fed stuff. They have a uh, a staff full of PhD economists, left-leaning PhD economists, but uh, kind of so ideologically conformist. Uh, but they have a lot of smart people there who work there and, and look at all the official economic statistics, but they miss a lot of this stuff. And so part of what we have to do and part of what we hope to do with this paper is to try to convince the Fed to be a little more humble about its predictions. They were very confident in predicting that there was not going to be inflation. It was going to be transitory. We all remember those days. Do you honestly believe they believed that? Because there's a lot of people who knew that wasn't true. Do you think there is, that is just a way of dampening the impact of this? I think it's a combination. I think I think um, the majority is they didn't, they didn't know because they were in their own bubble. And then I think there was a, a minority that did worry about it but didn't feel they could say something about it. So there is, uh, there's good reason to believe that Jay Powell um, downplayed the risks of non-transitory inflation because he wanted to be reappointed Fed chair. And he was worried- God knows why he wanted to keep that job. <laughs> That's a great, great question, but uh, you'll have to ask him that someday if you ever get the chance to interview Jay Powell. It's probably harder than interviewing Naib Bukele, but- uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and 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 Janet Yellen. Yeah, absolutely. So 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 uh, the Randall Quarles, who uh, was until recently on the Fed Board of Governors, said in an interview or in a, in a speech that um, uh, he said it very cryptically, but he effectively strongly implied that uh, that the Fed didn't take action against inflation because Biden took too long to reappoint Powell as Fed chair. Well, what does that tell you? Why, why would it matter? The Fed's supposed to be independent. It's not supposed to matter what Biden wants to do. They're supposed to be able to be these, these brilliant PhDs with their technocratic approach. So what clearly was going on is uh, Jay was looking over his shoulder at a possibly more dovish candidate maybe being nominated ahead of him, Lil Brainerd. And he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, keep pouring, pouring fuel on the fire here until I get reappointed. Then I'll, then I'll uh, raise interest rates, which is exactly what he's done. Well, what role does uh, wages play in this and wage rises? Uh, obviously, you've covered that in the document. I, I know uh, from you know, speaking to friends who are talking about inflation at the moment, talking about whether their uh, employers are, are giving pay rises. And you know, it's a tough time at the moment because it looks like we're heading into recession. We may even be in recession. So small rate raises I know are happening, but, happening, but they're real world uh, deductions. I know even in the UK, there was like an agreed amount for the nurses. I think it was three, I don't know what the amount, Danny can look it up, but there was an amount agreed for the nurses. And whether it's one, two or 3% they're arguing about, that is still a real world uh, pay cut mm -hmm. because of the inflation levels. But private businesses have a, a lot more scope to yeah. to right, raise wages. They you know they run their own balance sheet. They know what, the, what their uh, company's doing. Um, my, my understanding is that the problem with those in maybe the more poorest who, who are this, either surviving on welfare or have got minimum wage jobs, you're not going to see a rise in a uh, regulated or mandated minimum wage that's going to be inflation. You're not going to see a 10% rise or 15% rise. So does that create another issue? Well, there, there's a lot to say about this topic. First is that wages usually lag the price increases, right? So inflation happens first most of the time, not always, but most of the time, inflation will happen first 
And then people will raise wages to try to, you know, to catch up with that. Sometimes it goes the other way, but but usually the inflation happens first and wages, wage increases happen later. And so you're still feeling the bite of inflation. Maybe over time it sort of keeps up, but but you're still feeling the bite of it. So generally speaking, inflation still does affect you. And then there's the, the point that we were alluding to earlier about the fact that um, if you're wealthy, you benefit from inflation, right? If you yeah. own your home, your home prices are going up. If you own a, a, you know, a 401k or a stock portfolio, those things go up in inflation variance. Those of us who own Bitcoin, Bitcoin has benefited from all the easy money, et cetera, right? So, so, so all that to say that, there, there, that, that the wealth inequality does definitely occur, and, and I think we documented pretty persuasively in this paper. Another piece of it that is uh, that, that you're reminding me of with the comment about you know people who are on welfare versus not is that most welfare benefits, including Social Security, pension benefits, type public pension benefits, are indexed to CPI or some other CPI-related formula. So um, Medicaid spending or food stamp spending or Social Security spending will go up. But if you are privately employed, if you are if you are a member of a working age population, or and you're in the workforce, and you're getting you're depending on your employer to keep uh, uh, to keep pace with inflation, that lags. So you create this kind of two tiered track where on one track they're the people who are either government employees or who get their benefits from the government primarily, whose pay may go up uh, over time because of government formulas that make sure that those payments track inflation. On the other side. Uh, if you um, if you have a minimum wage job or uh, a job that's not uh, tracking inflation in the private sector, if you're in the working poor, you're going to fall further behind. So the wealthy are going to do well. People whose pay is from the government may you know keep pace with CPI, but if you're not in one of those two categories, um, you're going to struggle more. So that's going to create more resentment, more potential. Uh, certainly political unrest, if not worse. And uh, it's it's a huge problem. And so this field, you know, we went through all the academic literature. We actually said, okay, who is working on this? And it's really remarkable how, you know, inequality is like the dominant topic in every area of political and economic policy, except inflation. This is like the one area where just people, almost nobody is working on it. And so we just felt it was really important for us to throw our hat in the ring there. And, and hopefully we did some something useful on it. But I want to go back to your, your point there. Even if welfare tracks to CPI, we've already said that CPI is an average. Yep. So actually, they, they are still seeing a real, real totally. world decrease, even if it tracks CPI. That's true. Yeah. Is there any, if you don't need to work looking at those who maybe who are, uh, the working, but maybe on a minimum wage, that this creates an incentive not to work? Um, that is something that we're very interested in as a follow-on area. So okay. there's there's a whole, you know, we, we've a lot of people are talking in the U.S. I don't know what's going on in the U.K. or in Europe, but in the U.S., there's there's increasing amount of commentary on this, the great resignation it's being called, that a lot of people who were thrown out of their jobs during COVID or maybe quit because they felt unsafe going back to work have realized that or felt that for whatever reason that they don't want to go back to work or they can't find a, a job or uh, we don't really know. There, there's not really good survey data on this yet, but there's a lot of people who dropped out of the workforce during COVID who have not re-entered the workforce as COVID has subsided. And it's pretty alarming. And there are, I guess, various reasons for that. Some, yeah, they maybe have got a partner who's working, it's not worth going back, but maybe their, their stimulus or their welfare payments are enough. And maybe they have a cash side hustle. Yeah, it could be all those things. That, you yeah. know, the thing I worry about, and I hope is not the case, but what I worry about and what we need to do research on is 
what if there are a lot of people out there who worked because they felt that was what they were supposed to do. They were supposed right. to work. That was the way they survived, the way they get by, the way they were part of society. And they lost their job during COVID. They got some of the, the, the relief money and, and started participating in some of these government programs and then felt at the end of that, well, wow, these programs pay me as much as I was making before and there's no income taxes on this money. So that's actually a pretty good setup. And so they don't go back to work because of that. And what there's an enormous amount of research that shows that people who fall into that um, that track end up much less happy, much less fulfilled in certain ways, lose a lot of their connection to, to society and to communities if they are not in a position where they're working in, in the more conventional, traditional way. And so that's something that welfare reformers have have long talked about. The whole welfare reform effort in the 1990s under Bill Clinton was all about this. We The best welfare program is a job because that's what not only gives you that sense of fulfillment and that sense of being part of a team, part mm-hmm. of a group of people, but you can you can work harder, you can make more money, you can get even do even better over time, and you can't do that on a welfare program. There's a, there's a limit to how much uh, you can earn on welfare, and then that's it. And so people get kind of in a rut in that situation. So uh, again, we don't know yet if that's what's happening, but that's what I'm I worry about. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you do do work on that, I'd love, I'd love to see it. Um, Okay, so with regards to inflation, historical target of governments is 2%, sometimes mm-hmm. you know, overshoot, sometimes undershoot. Yeah. And you've said even at that level, that compounds over years. Is inflation actually necessary? We've always been told it's necessary because if we have deflation, people won't spend, and that might lead to recession. Is, is, is that bullshit, just something that the government says because inflation allows them to expand the monetary base as kind of... Yeah, over time, or is there a genuine risk of deflation? Well, before we even get to that, we should mention, and you may have talked about this with some of your other guests, I don't remember, but um, the Fed did something very significant last year, uh, which is they uh, moved from a de facto ceiling on inflation, where they tried to keep inflation under 2% at all times, to what they now call flexible average inflation targeting, where the average inflation rate is supposed to be 2%, but it can go above at some time and go below. And the idea is that they'll, they're so good at managing inflation that they'll be able to keep it at an average of 2%, which, of course, they as soon as they did that, inflation basically blew through their average and is now out of control. So that was a major policy change by the Fed. It changed a policy that had been around either explicitly or implicitly for decades. So that was a huge choice by the Fed that turned out very disastrously for them. So that's something we should just note in in, in a preface to what, what your question mm-hmm. is. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I would argue as a, as a Bitcoiner that the, the supply of money should be as close to constant as possible, or at the very least, only minimally growing, uh, but, but ideally constant. Um, that's obviously very far afield from where we are today. So you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, wave a magic wand and convert the dollar to that mode without massive, massive financial and economic disruption. So I'm not advocating that as what the Fed should do tomorrow. But yes, in an ideal world, at the very least, we should shoot for 0% CPI, not 2% CPI. On top of that, we need to measure inflation more accurately. And and this gets to some of the stuff that obviously Bitcoiners talk about a lot in terms of the the Cantillon or Cantillon effect, uh, where uh, inflation is not this thing that symmetrically raises all prices equally. And and one of the problems in our inflation debate, actually, is that there's, there's actually a big difference among what we might call monetary hawks or monetary conservatives, and that 
There's what we might call the Milton Friedman School and what we might call the von Mises or Austrian School. And the difference is that the, the Austrians would say the supply of money should be effectively constant because that's the, the most, that's the gold standard of hard money, right? Literally. Uh, Friedman's view was a little different. Friedman's view was that the monetary supply should uh, track economic growth, roughly speaking. I'm oversimplifying to some degree, but that's what he would say. He'd say, okay. if you want CPI or prices to be constant, then yes, you can grow the money supply, but just grow it roughly around the way that the economy is growing. If you do that, then prices will be stable. Um, and that's what a lot of, you know, of the sort of right-leaning or hawkish-leaning people at the Fed uh, claim to support is the Friedman model. And I personally am of the view that the Friedman model is wrong because of the Cantillon effect, that uh, prices don't symmetrically increase. This is the insight of the of the Austrians and of Cantillon himself. So that's one division that create, makes it harder to reform the Fed, which is to say that there's the doves, there's the Friedmanite hawks, and then there's the Austrians who are sort of seen as these completely outre illegitimate participants in the debate. If, you, if you're an Austrian, if you're a Bitcoiner, if you're like a gold bug, if you're any of those categories, if you're even Peter Schiff, you know, you're like, <laughs> there he is in the corner. If you're even Peter Schiff or Steve Hanke, uh, uh, or one of these guys, like, you, you know, Steve, actually, Hanke is more of a Friedman, Friedman guy. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure where Schiff falls on that, on that front, but Hanke is very much a Friedman guy. But all this to say that, like, there's, they are at least somewhat part of, they're on the far end of the mainstream conversation and Austrians slash Bitcoiners are not, right? They're totally mm. off of the mainstream. So we have a long way to go to have a monetary policy that is as sound as what Bitcoin's monetary policy is. But at the very least, if we could get to the Friedman approach, which we might call a center center right or center hawkish in the in the monetary context, not in the broader political or partisan context, but in the context of monetary policy, the sort of mainstream hawk view might be, let's have 0% or uh, inflation. That would be sort of the far end of the hawkish spectrum. And, and I think that should be the goal. And I will say there are people who support that. There are people in Washington, Pat Toomey has, has, has alluded to this. He's the uh, retiring Republican ranking member on the Senate Banking Committee, who has jurisdiction over some of the stuff. And, uh, and, and he said, yeah, some people believe, and I respect their views, that inflation should be 0%. Um, and we would be a, 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 a more, a fairer country and a less regressive country when it comes to the evolution of prices if we strove for 0% inflation instead of 2%. But, you know, what, what do the Keynesian, what do the, the mainstream economists say to that? They say, well, if you had 0% inflation, then people would have an incentive to save instead of spend. By the way, why is that such a bad idea? Well, it's terrible. I mean, can you imagine if people saved all their money instead of spending it, then GDP would shrink or something. Like, that's the argument. The argument is that unless you steer people into spending their money, then the economy would sort of die. And that's not true. We, we, you know, if, if my money is appreciating the bank, I'm still going to spend it on food on a house TVs. on trips to Nashville to see you I'm going to I'm going to spend money on things I'm yeah I'm going to buy a TV I'm, like we're all going to spend money that's what that's what we do with money so this idea that somehow people are going to stop spending money if somehow they're rewarded for saving is is just one of these theories that every mainstream economist believes that isn't true uh, and that's a it's a major error in monetary policy my expectation with that as well is that people will become more considerate, though, about what they spend their money yeah, on. Yeah, sure. Which would encourage people who are producers of products and services to have to produce better products and services. I think right. we've 
we've been a little bit too exposed to people getting away with producing absolute shit. I think the fast fashion industry is an example of that. And uh, I think we should move away from that. I, I, I don't see the issue with having people save. But I, I, I think some of this is... Well, I, I think this is really the result of poor economic policy that the narrative changes. Yeah, you know, I mean, the way, the way I'd put it is that a lot of people, particularly intellectuals, like to complain about our consumerist culture in America. Well, what creates a consumerist culture? A monetary policy that destroys the long-term value and reward for saving your own money. I had uh, Steve McClurk in here this morning. We were talking about uh, what is happening. He was talking about uh, rate hikes that come in, and hopefully that's going to bring inflation under control. But also saying, look, there's a potential towards the end of the year, there's going to be a massive uh, stimulus injected into the market. And he said, a couple of people have now said this could be five to ten trillion, which will then again lead to inflation, and we're going to get this almost kind of yo-yo effect. Uh, he believes there is a risk we get to very high inflation, the kind of inflation numbers we used to see in places like South America and. and uh, in Argentina, which I can't even imagine happening. It's just, it just seems absolutely crazy. But what it does lead is a potential monetary collapse at some point. And in, from the ashes of that, maybe, maybe you would have a government that has, has to have a more responsible monetary policy, maybe 0% inflation. Maybe the Austrians win in this scenario. Or maybe we just all move to Bitcoin. Well, I'm. I'm. Uh, first of all, I, I. I. I think that's unlikely as a near-term scenario, because particularly when you think about the fact that um, in the November 2022 elections, the Republicans are likely to take the House at the very least, if not the Senate. Yeah. And that means that in terms of Congress spending money, there's going to be a bit of a gridlock situation where they're not going to agree on what to do. So that I think is at least on the fiscal side of monetary stimulus not going to be there. The Fed, of course, could reverse course because they're spooked by a recession or by the stock market collapsing and things like that. That's possible. I don't think it'll be like COVID level stimulus, but could they put a halt to their increases in interest rates and 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 their phase out of QE? They could do things like that. Um, that remains to be seen. But I, I am I'm less worried about the near term situation, and I'm much more worried about the long term situation, which was the theme of that piece we talked about when I was last on your show, Bitcoin and the U.S. fiscal reckoning. That that long term deficit and debt problem that the U.S. has that's continuing to get worse, largely because of healthcare spending. That is the thing that, in a twenty to thirty year time frame, is going to be very disastrous. And if we do have that kind of let's not call it hyperinflation, let's just call it significant inflation. Let's say inflation gets to 20 or 30%. It doesn't have, I mean, hyperinflation we think of as like a thousand percent inflation. Let's say it's 20 to 30%. It's not even all the way to where Turkey is this year. Let's say it's half a Turkey. Then that is uh, catastrophic for the country. And I would honestly fear for the, the Republic. I mean, in the sense of you could imagine massive changes to the constitution, to the government, uh, and the stability of, of the government if that happened. So, all this to say, I think we even balkanization. Yeah, I mean, all that could happen. So, I, you know, the and, and the human cost in terms yeah. of like uh, because most people don't own Bitcoin, right? So, uh, I think part of our job is, and you do this obviously better than almost anybody, is is to spread the word and convince people to, to, to park some of their money in, in the hardest money that's ever existed so they can protect themselves with this problem. But if, if, if the majority of the country doesn't do that, then they're going to be um, very upset when that 20 to 30% inflation hits them. And uh, 
we should not root for that outcome because the revolution uh, revolutions in general are are very damaging, very costly, can lead to worse outcomes in the end than than the society we have today. In terms of Bitcoin, um, you gave a great intro explaining the work that FreeOp does and who you're trying to help in society. Um, but I was I would still consider Bitcoin as an asset and and kind of a luxury purchase. So what role does that pay in the policy work that you're doing? Do you consider it as something that you should be encouraging those um, within the, the kind of poorest aspect of society to at least try and put a little in there for some long-term investment? Or is this more that you're encouraging uh, a move to a more Bitcoin-based society because that creates a, a more responsible economy? It's both. Okay. I mean, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's both. If you have a more... If you have a more Bitcoin-based society, then lower-income people are going to more naturally have more Bitcoin because they're going to use it more widely, right? So, for example, if this two hundred dollar threshold for payments kicks in, and you can you can spend you can buy your your hot dog or or your your meals or your grocery shopping with Bitcoin and know that you're not going to have to pay capital gains tax on that. That then lubricates the ability of Bitcoin to be more of a payment mechanism without having to use the the kind of second layer stuff that that Strike and others are, are building, right? So that that could be very interesting as a way of encouraging more people to payment to me. Payments to me are a gateway drug to saving with Bitcoin, right? So the value to me of in a in a in a in a relatively censorship free environment. Obviously, if you're in a place like China or Ukraine or wherever where you need to send money in a century-free way. That's where the payment piece of Bitcoin is super important. But uh, the 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 value of a, say, more Bitcoin-centric trading or payments-based economy in the in a place like the U.S. is that then if, you, if you're buying and selling in Bitcoin just by kind of thermodynamics, by your just general inertia, you're going to have money that you're saving in Bitcoin over time. Like and this is the kind of in theory the upside of the El Salvador situation, right? Is if people are uh, buying and selling in Bitcoin, then they're going to save some of it in Bitcoin. They're not going to trade it all back to dollars. And if they do, and they see that value appreciating over time, then that's when it starts to help them. So that's the value of the, of the second p- part of what you're saying. But the first part is important too. You know, the work of people like the Black, Black Bitcoin billionaires and others who say, look. You know, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy, you know, a couple sats a day if that's all you can afford. Just, just do what you can. And remember, and, and and what we talked about with the with the the Keynesian approach to spending versus saving, encouraging that culture of saving again is so important. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about the people who grew up th- during the Depression. The Depression and the Depression people were way poorer in every way than Americans are today, right? Both in terms of just, you know, the actual, you know, dollars that they had in the bank. And the technology, what that, what those dollars could buy, right? They were way poorer than us. There were bread lines; people were starving, and they had that culture of saving because they couldn't trust banks, right? They put the money under the mattresses, things like that. But if you, if if you've known people who lived through the depression, your grandparents say they will tell you how much they hated debt. They really right. didn't want to be in debt because they never wanted to be in a situation like that ever again, right? Mm. And we've lost that because we're losing that generation. But what if we could recreate that using Bitcoin? What if people could realize through Bitcoin that I don't want to be stuck with these dollars that are are declining in value over time? I want to have an asset where I can I can save, I can rise up. Maybe I'm only saving 1% of my income every year by being a little more frugal, but over time that, that can compounds. that can mean something. Yeah. Um 
I do want to ask you one more thing on uh, inflation before we finish up. I, I want to understand a little bit more about how it Im- impacts uh, the middle class and uh, the more wealthy in society. But before we get to that, is there any part of this with regards to the poorest in society we've not covered? Let's see. We've covered the the fact that the um, the uh, the basket of consumption is different, mm-hmm. and that's important. We've covered the fact that as a share of their disposable income, because they don't have any disposable income, inflation imp- impacts them more. That's really important. We've talked about the fact that because they don't have a house or a, a stock portfolio, they don't benefit from inflation the way wealthy people do, and that's why they're uh, uh, kind of on a treadmill, just running in place. Um, those are the most, probably the most important elements. I mean, and, and we talked about the wealth inequality piece, which is as mm. time goes on and say homes get more expensive, the ability to enter the ownership society, as as some used to call in the past, becomes harder and harder because it becomes harder to, to own a house. You can own Bitcoin though. And that's that's the the counter-revolution, you could say. Your digital property. Yeah. So I think those, those are probably the main things I'd highlight. Well, and again, I'm just going to raise BlackRock again. It just doesn't help with the likes of BlackRock buying tens of thousands of homes as a store of value for themselves as well. And that's taking... And by uh, the way, that's fueled by easy monetary policy, right? Because they benefit from low interest rates that allow them to borrow gobs of money. And this, is, this is another element that's really important, by the way, that this is maybe the thing we haven't discussed, which is that... Um, the, again, conventional wisdom among Fed economists, among mainstream economists, is that easy monetary policy is good for the poor because poor tend to, um, if they want to borrow, they need to borrow money because they're poor. Mm-hmm. And if they, uh, if they borrow at a lower interest rate, they'll be able to borrow more. That's the theory. Uh, the reality is that the people who borrow the most when interest rates are low are financial institutions, and hedge funds, and private equity funds, and venture funds. These are the people who who are the beneficiaries of the Fed when the Fed prints money, when the Fed lowers interest rates. Not poor people, because poor people have poor credit ratings and can't borrow anything. Try getting a mortgage if you're making $20,000 a year. You can't. Try getting a credit card if you're making $20,000 a year. Maybe you can, but the interest rate on that credit card is going to be like 50%. So, the, you know, this idea, this dogma at the Fed and among many mainstream economists that if you are poor, you benefit from low interest rates and easy money policies is completely wrong and requires a total reexamination. This is one of the, the real problems that we have right now. The reason why monetary policy in America and around the developed world is so bad is because of this intellectual mistake that mainstream economists are making. Mistake or perhaps dishonesty. I mean, look, the information's out there if people want it. That, that is true. But, you know, I mean, I, I will say I, I, I talk to a lot of these people and they, they, they genuinely believe it. Right. They're wrong, but okay. they genuinely believe it. With regards to the middle class, not everyone in the middle class owns a home. You've still got right. renters, especially in uh, large cities. Yeah. I know there's a squeeze on the middle class right now. Totally. And when there's a squeeze on the middle class, that means they're also having to make... Uh, decisions about you know, what they want to buy. Of course, they have more disposable income, and some people are saying, "Well, you shouldn't be complaining." But there is a reality for the middle class as well. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so, all the same things are true. They're less less accentuated for the okay. middle class than the, than the uh, than the poorest or lowest earning uh, people. But uh, particularly, the pieces around wealth inequality affect the middle class the most. So, again, when when we were young, when our parents were young, there was a sense of if you. If you work hard and you have a steady job and, and you do your part in that way, uh, 
you will be able to own a home someday. The, the quintessential description of the American dream is- White picket fence? Yeah, you own a home and, and that becomes your nest egg and it becomes the thing you can pass on to your kids. And we have taken that away from tens of millions of Americans and, and many more around the world through these kinds of policies. And um, it, it it is a huge problem. And again, I, I, what I'm really worried about on this particular front is that the- dogmas that I've described about monetary policy are so entrenched in, in the mainstream economic community and at the Fed that we're probably at least another 10 years from people waking up to the fact that they're tragically wrong on this stuff. And that means another 10 years of of this problem getting worse. Well, Lynn Alden said it's going to be, a, a, the next decade is going to be all about inflation. It's going to be very painful for a lot of people. I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on the wealthiest in society. I mean, my, my conclusion I'm coming to is they mainly benefit. They do. Um, uh, and we've seen it. I mean, you know, uh, if you look at uh, uh, price-to-earnings ratios in the S&P 500, for example. So uh, for those that don't know, most of you probably do. But if you don't know, the Standard & Poor's uh, 500 index is, the, is a basket of, the, uh, of 500 very large companies in the U.S. stock market. And... Um, the price-to-earnings ratio, which is the stock price relative to the actual profits that are generated by these companies per share, um, was at record highs prior to the recent tightening by the Fed. Record highs or modern record highs. And that shows you that there's a lot of money sloshing around the system relative to the actual fundamental profits or growth or economic generation of these companies. And that's that's one measure of many I could point you to say, look, we were in a a bubble of financial assets that, again, benefits the people who have the ability to own financial assets, which are people with disposable income, people who don't spend, don't have to spend uh, as much as they earn. If you're able to earn a lot more than you spend uh, because you're making six figures or something higher and you're not living in New York City or San Francisco, then uh, you can say, put money away. You can Maybe you have a, a really nice 401k benefit with your job. Whatever it is, uh, whether it's a pension benefit or it's your own frugality or your own high earning capacity, if that is a huge, huge problem. And so that's created a massive kind of uh, two-tiered society in America. It's really the two tiers of society are people who own homes and have stock portfolios and people who don't. And the gap between those two populations is widening. It's a rigged system, Ovik. Um, okay, uh, just to finish off, is there, is there anything you're optimistic about? <laughs> Do you have optimism on anything? Yes. I mean, okay, gosh, I, you know, it's, it, it, it is. is when, you, when you work on public policy and you're trying to solve problems, of yeah. course, you're focused on the things that, are, that, are, that, are, that need to be improved or that need to be fixed. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the ability of Bitcoin to be the hardest money the world's ever seen, to be that vehicle of savings. And I think, as I said, the most important thing to minimize a civilizational disruption is for people like us to do everything possible to get as many people into Bitcoin as possible, particularly on the lower end of the scale. There have been emerging surveys that show that um, wealthier people are the ones disproportionately who own Bitcoin or higher earners. So we got to do more on that front. But that's but at least the technology exists. You know, 15 years ago, the technology wasn't there. And mm-hmm. so the fact that, the, that it's even possible to do what we're talking about is... Uh, an incredibly important fact that that allows for the preservation of of wealth for even very low low income or low net worth individuals. So that's really important. The fact that that alternative exists and it's possible that we may have a gradual and peaceful transition into that system. I think that's really important. 
I'm optimistic about the fact that there is technological innovation going on all the time that if allowed to by incumbents, by regulators, by people who make laws, if it's allowed to compete with the legacy system, it can make a lot of things less expensive. So we've been talking a lot uh, today about housing. There's a startup uh, called Icon that makes 3D printed houses. The, okay. the first one is in downtown Austin, actually, uh, and, and some of the founders are based there. And that's something that could revolutionize the cost of construction of homes. And at a time when one of the limitations in the building of homes is the lack of construction workers and contractors to build the homes, if you could print the homes with 3D, a printing of concrete, then you could, in theory, build much larger and, and, and cheaper and faster housing units in a way that could make housing more affordable for more people, for example. So there's a lot of innovation going on in the world that can solve these problems. And I think one thing that uh, one mistake that people all often make uh, when they're looking out at the world is to just sort of say, we're going to take these trends from the past and we're just going to straight line them into the future. And they don't take into account things like the ability of innovation to change some of those curves. So I'm very optimistic about the ability of innovation to change some of these things and make them better in ways that we can't even anticipate. Amazing. Well, listen, Ovik, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and hang out with you and have a beer or go and eat. Uh, and I appreciate you coming into Nashville for this. Um, hopefully I'll see you uh, in London at some point in the yeah, future. That'd be great. Um, but I, I expect uh, every few months we hopefully we'll get to do this again because uh, I, you're you're a really great speaker and and the work that Freeopt is doing is is incredible. Everyone listening, make sure you go and check it out. Uh, we'll put all the links in the show notes and just keep doing good work, man. I really appreciate you. Uh, Peter, same to you. I, I'm such an admirer of everything you do. You, you've just contributed so much to this space, so much to this community, and and I wanted you to keep doing it as long as you don't get tired of it. Don't get tired of us. And Danny, let's thank Danny as well. And Jeremy. <laughs> Danny too, yes, exactly, Jeremy. And David Zoll. And, and, and Ben. All right, man, take care. Thanks, Thank you. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, then please head over to the What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.